AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Hey, Mike. It's good to see your smiling face. I hear you have a story for us about some data exposed by a popular keyring app. What can you tell us? So this is, you know, we've had stories that are, are similar, to, similar to this in the past, um, really a public cloud uh, exposure due to a, a misconfiguration. So like you mentioned, Keyring is a digital wallet app, um, has 14 million users across North America, and it's for things like gift cards, membership cards, award cards. Uh, the, some folks do actually put their uh, credit card on there, can they take basic pictures of both sides, so the number and the CVV. Um, and they unfortunately had a, a breach recently where they exposed about 44 million IDs uh, across those uh, 14 million users. Um, so these researchers from uh, VPN Mentor uh, stumbled upon these five misconfigured S3 buckets. So S3 is simple storage service. Uh, it's an AWS service, which effectively uh, is these uh, buckets. You can store object data, uh, but they, they found these uh, exposed uh, databases, which included all these uh, various credentials for all the different uh, cards that this uh, digital wallet um, you know keeps keeps track of. Uh, so the researchers disclosed the uh, exposure to Keyring. Uh, it was addressed, um, but you know unfortunately it, it leaves all these users open to potential for fraud, uh, for identity theft, um, you know obviously uh, use of maybe their credit cards or any of the cards that they really have out on an application. So this is an application, if I understand it right, that you just take pictures of your existing credit cards or um, membership cards, and then you carry that around instead of carrying your wallet full of cards. Is that right? That's right. So it, it seems to be mostly photo-based, like you just mentioned. So you're basically taking pictures uh, just so you don't have to carry around all those physical cards. Okay. And the problem here was that there were some S3 buckets in Amazon that were misconfigured, and the VPN mentor guys found that, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, this is, it's getting a little more difficult uh, to actually have a public S3 bucket. Um, you know, AWS has this whole shared responsibility model with what they're responsible for and what the applications are responsible for. They put a lot of controls in place to make sure when you create an S3 bucket, by default, it's private, right? It's not public. So you really have to purposely enable uh, public access. So um, that's either the assumption here, there's not a lot of details on exactly how they, they stumbled upon this. You know, there are some new techniques for basically doing like S3 bucket enumeration, right? So you kind of try uh, a URL to see if the bucket exists or not. You kind of will get this response. Usually if it's unauthenticated, you'll still get a response. So you, know, you kind of can do these scanning, uh, you know, they may have happened upon it in maybe a GitHub reference or something. Um, but you know, essentially these buckets are open uh, to the public. Anyone who happens upon that URL uh, is able to see any of the contents. Um, so the, the, there was one bucket that effectively I think had the, um, the user data and they mentioned there were four others that were more related to internals for that, uh, for key rings. So maybe uh, some of their internal infrastructure that were also exposed. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a problem that we continue to see, uh, even though it gets, it's becoming more and more difficult to purposely expose uh, these buckets. So it sounds to me like there are things in place that Amazon has put there to prevent this from accidentally happening. And there are probably some things that developers can do uh, just to keep this um, from accidentally happening from changes that they've made. Uh, is there any recommendation that you would give to, say, um, a user of this application at this point? Like, what can they do about the situation? 
Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's difficult for some of the things like your gift cards or your reward cards being exposed. Obviously, um, you know, for credit cards that may be uh, on that uh, a part of that exposure, a part of this application, you want to obviously cancel those. Um, and then maybe look to uh, utilizing or reaching out to the various companies uh, for the different rewards uh, or gift cards. Uh, they mentioned, um, I think Walmart was a, a large percentage of the exposed gift cards. So, um, you know, just, just understand that as part of this, if you utilize that app, uh, there's a good potential that someone may have uh, access to uh, all that data. So there are some ways um, that applications and companies can protect themselves against this type of exposure. Uh, there's lots of cloud native uh, tooling, there's third parties, even a lot of open source that will you know, monitor your configurations, uh, look for specific issues like public buckets, um, and even do sometimes auto remediation, certainly alerting. So, um, you know, it, it, you need to have uh, visibility, certainly in public cloud, into all your resources, all their configurations. You know, you don't have that traditional perimeter that you're used to, right, providing extra protection. So, um, keeping inventory resources, keeping uh, track of configurations, understanding what the uh, vulnerable or exposed configurations are. So you'd have some kind of uh, specific knowledge of, of that specific cloud service provider and their specific services. Um, but you definitely want to make sure you're monitoring. Um, there are a few use cases for having a public bucket, right? Something like maybe an end user agreement we've seen. Uh, and, and kind of best practices are you should definitely have a registry of those. You should know which ones are supposed to be public. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, anything that shows up that that is public, it's not a list. You need to make sure you're uh, your proper uh, remediation. All right. Sounds like a solid list of tips for, for people to follow. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for bringing the story to All us. Right. All right. Thanks, Matt. So, Matt, so you have an interesting story here. Uh, someone did some pretty deep research on phishing kits, and we found a lot of the common characteristics uh, that you can see across a large uh, swatch of them. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting read. So Imperva put this report together, analysis of 1,009 phishing kits. And um, they did get a whole bunch of different phishing kits that they found on the internet, either ones from an older data set or like daily updated ones. They took a look at the different aspects of them. And from having looked at a good deal of them myself, I recognized a lot of the sorts of things they're talking about. Um, seems like a lot of them are built in order to collect credentials and ship them by email to the person who is benefiting from them. So maybe I should step back a bit and sort of walk through the life cycle of a phishing kit. Uh, so there's a small group of people out there who have the technical knowledge on how to build one. You know, build something that looks like a real website uh, that collects the credentials when somebody types them in and then packages them and sends them an email to whoever's operating the kit. So there's a large, a very small group of people who have that knowledge, but a larger group of people who serve as the customers, who buy the phishing kits, set them up, collect the credentials to one of their email accounts. Uh, so it seems sort of like, you know, it's it's not like every single phishing kit you've encountered uh, was, you know, written by or handcrafted by the person who put it on the server. Uh, you've got, a, you know, sort of a, a difference of populations there. Uh, one of the other things that I found personally interesting is that a number of these kits are given away for free. And what happens in a lot of those cases is that somebody who's very technically savvy creates the kit and puts in a little bit of a backdoor so that anytime the kit captures somebody's credentials and sends them to the person who bought the kit, it also sends it to the original author. And for example, I said bought the kit in that case, but you know, if someone said to somebody who's just getting nude into phishing, hey, here's a free one, go ahead, you can, you can use it for free, it's a gift, they're benefiting because they're sort of still 
going to get those stolen creds without all the work of setting it up uh, on a server somewhere. So it's sort of a little bit of a parasitic relationship there. So these kits themselves often come as like a, a zipped up file, uh, sort of like the, the pages themselves that sort of present to the user and then also the processing backend that sends the files out. Uh, and in my experience, I've seen a lot of situations where that whole kit, the package version, like a zip file, stays on the server and whoever deploys it sort of just leaves it lying around. Uh, and in that form, you can actually take a look at the source code, which is fascinating. So I thought it was a very interesting read. If you're just getting used to the idea of phishing kits to understand what they are and how that whole uh, ecosystem works, I think it's a really good uh, write-up to read. Um, and even if you are sort of experienced in it, just seeing you know some of the things that you know a larger view of the world gives you from a, a report like this, I think is also fascinating. So the article mentions that uh, sometimes uh, they forget to remove maybe some files or some directories that are part of the kind of the phishing kit framework, and that makes them sometimes easier to identify. Yeah, that is kind of cool, right? So I think the the folks who are technical who create the kits understand exactly what needs to be there and what doesn't, and the guys who are using it as as end users may not, and just sort of leave artifacts lying around, like zip files or extra directories or like temporary things or in, like instructions. So like if you know where to look within the, the, the website, you might be able to locate these sorts of phishing kits as they are on the server. And if you had a good way to do that at scale, you could kind of identify you know, quickly, you know, is this a phishing kit or not? And whose is it? Who wrote it? And maybe even who paid for it or who, is, who the user is? Because there's like configuration files and things that if you're going to use it, you have to drop your, your recipient email in or you have to drop in um, the subject of the email that you're sent, you know, that's it sent. There's there's all sorts of little bits and pieces that um, can be used to show who's actually operating the kit, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's it's a really great story for you know people again who are kind of not familiar with these kits, you know, just how common they are, and you know, as you mentioned, how they're really all based on kind of one small set of uh, kind of initial kits. So Mike, you've got a story, it seems, about Emotet. And we know Emotet is a fairly common malware, uh, but it sounds like in this case, the, the malicious effect was a little bit above and beyond what usually happens with an Emotet infection, right? Yeah, this one's interesting. Uh, so as you mentioned, kind of this, this Emotet infection in, the, uh, in this uh, company organization, uh, the article actually kind of changes the name, uh, just that makes up a name so they don't actually call out who it was. Uh, but yeah, Emotet essentially you know, took down the entire network um, by overheating all the computers, all the servers, um, by literally maxing out CPU and basically brought their entire infrastructure um, to a crawl. Uh, so the article talks through kind of the timeline of this infection. Uh, it started out with a uh, targeted fish employee that kind of got their initial foothold. They exfiltrated those credentials, eventually fishing a handful of other employees. Basically, they, within eight days, you know, all the PCs started overheating or freezing or rebooting or blue screening. And Ardo kind of talks about how this basically was chaos. They had no idea what was happening, if it was something external, if it was something that was, uh, you know, basically moving around through the network. They ultimately br brought in the, uh, the Microsoft Defense and Response, the DART team, uh, to do some consultation. Um, and, you know, effectively, they mentioned that, you know, the, this, the malware, some of the behavior matched uh, similar uh, to a, uh, an outbreak in the Allentown, Pennsylvania government from back in, in 2018. Um, but, you know, essentially it, it evaded all the antivirus, uh, all their firewalls, 
Microsoft uh, made some recommendations in the article um, that you uh, should look at using uh, email filtering to detect phishing. Make sure you're using and adopting multi-factor whenever you can to, to reduce the usage of these stolen credentials. Yeah, so do we understand exactly why uh, it maxed out the CPU? Was that some intentional function of this specific type of, of Emotet, or was this something that it just didn't interact properly with the system, or, or what's going on here? Yeah, so from, from what I can tell from the article, it seemed like it was actually purpose purposeful um, kind of a, a effect of, of this specific malware. Um, they talked about basically all the internet connections kind of slowed down, you couldn't send email, um, you know, effectively froze, you know, basically their, their entire network uh, and infrastructure. So Emotet is, is, you know, sort of getting at a reputation for having interesting side effects or at least interesting uh, techniques that it uses. There was a, a Wi-Fi spreader module for Emotet, and I know that right now it does have the ability to move laterally within networks by stealing credentials, which is, you know, a little, a little above the, the average malware, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it, it, like you mentioned, there's, they mentioned all these different kind of mutations that they have now, um, and the article even talks about some of the you know severe outcomes um, that that have been observed for for companies that have been infected. All right. So if you were uh, an admin of a corporate network and you were tasked with dealing with Emotet, what could you do ahead of time to defend yourself from a situation like this? Yeah. So you know, obviously keep uh, keep your antivirus up to date. Um, you know, again, kind of like, like Microsoft recommends, um, you know, that initial fish was, was kind of the, uh, you know, kind of how they, they got a foothold. Um, so uh, filtering out any, any fish attempts that are related um, and make sure that, you know, you, again, you're encouraging, enforcing, uh, if you can, MFA. Um, so any credentials, you know, aren't, aren't able to be fully utilized to, uh, you know, to gain additional access and do that, uh, that initial lateral movement. All right, Mike, before we go uh, into the internet weather, I just want to compliment you on your excellent quarantine beard. Yeah, thanks. I mean, uh, the hair, I have no choice. Um, you know, the beard, uh, just kind of, you know, doing what I can. Uh, also enjoy yours. Thank you very much. All right, let's get into it. So the, the top 10 most probe ports from the last week, there's been a couple movers and shakers here. Uh, port 23 TCP is back in the top. That's Telnet, of course, uh, followed by port 80 TCP, which is up three slots. And that is plain old HTTP. Um, in third place, we have 80 ICMP, which is ping, followed by 443 TCP, which is down three slots. That's HTTPS. 1433 TCP is down one spot. That's MS SQL Server. Um, and the next four spots, 445, 5555, 3389, and 22, uh, did not move. And if I could do this, I'll correct me in one go. Uh, I'll be proud of myself. Uh, that is SMB, uh, Android Debug Bridge remote desktop, and uh, SSH. And then down in 10th place, up to, is 8545, which I believe is Ethereum. Going on to the most sources probing. So this is a number of different endpoints that are probing for a certain port and not a measure of the volume of the probes. We have a lot of movement in the report this week. The top two, 445 and 23, have not moved. 1433, again, MS SQL Server is up two slots. Uh, 80 is up three slots. 8080 is an alternate web port that is up three slots as well. 443 is up six places. That's a, that's a big move. Uh, 80 ICMP again is ping, that's up two. 
53 UDP is DNS. That is up five spaces. 5555 Android Debug Bridge is up two. And then 81 TCP, which is another alternate web port that is uh, holding steady at 10. So taking a look at MS SQL Server, there has been a major uptick in the last week or so, peaking out around 16,000 scan sources per hour. Most of these are in China and Egypt. And I think last time I was on the show, there was a large number of them from Iran, but it seems to have shifted. Uh, I wanted to bring to people's attention a really interesting article that I found that does not directly relate to this uptick in scanning, but may provide uh, an explanation for the attack mechanisms that are possibly in play here. Uh, really interesting work by Gardecore. They're calling this Volgar, and it shows how if you manage to get into an MS SQL server by brute forcing passwords, the sorts of things you can do, uh, the kind of commands you can execute, and basically you've got command execution on the box you can do all sorts of interesting things so i recommend that you guys read this one if you're interested as as to why ms sql server is even a target in the first place any thoughts mike before we go on uh no i mean you know just just wondering also if you know um you know potential for adoption more adoption of say azure right for cloud services from ms sql maybe contributes to um you know, increasing some of these numbers. You know, we talked about had the story earlier on misconfiguration. You can misconfigure any service, and we have seen uh, misconfiguration of these kind of Azure hosted SQL servers. That's a good point. It's one of those things that I always kind of wonder why someone put a database connection on the internet. Um, maybe they think that password protection is sufficient, but uh, ultimately, I, I I don't think it is. Basically, if you've got something that only you know a handful of other hosts can connect to, the very least you can put a firewall in front of it and restrict it to those hosts. But apparently enough people don't do that. Going over to HTTPS 443 TCP, and this one is particularly interesting. I brought a 30-day uh, graph to show you guys, and you can see that there's a regular pattern of scanning. And then all of a sudden, far on the right, there's a massive spike in the number of scanning sources. Huge. Like, wow. This is sources and not volume. So it's it is a magnificent it is a, a big increase in the number of sources, uh, and majority of these sources are in a Swedish provider. So somebody there has a scanning project for some particular application on 443. Um, without actually being the recipient of one of those scans, it's very hard to tell exactly what it is they're looking for. Um, you know, you, we could speculate. I mean, I, I, the only things I can think of that. Um, no, I'm not going to speculate. I'm going to leave it up to the, the viewer's imagination. So we'll do that. And those are the two I chose to highlight for this week. So that's our internet weather. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.